The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us, which is a perfect love. And we thank you that we can love because you first loved us. Help me to encourage my brothers and sisters and others who might listen to this with the greatness of the truth of your word. We ask that you would make our minds clear. We thank you for the good things we've already heard today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so some of you are probably familiar with this book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. How many of you have read the book? Okay, most of you have read the book. I actually never read the book until like two months ago. And what happened was a dear friend whom I have a lot of respect for told me, you need to read this book. And this person is like a certified biblical counselor, really smart. It's like, you really want me to read this book? Okay, I guess I'll read this book. And uh, as I got into it some, I mean, I'd obviously heard of the concept of love languages. It's kind of intuitive that, you know, I like back rubs, she likes shoulder rubs or something. You know, different people have different things they want. Um, but this book has sold over 10 million copies. It's been translated into 50 languages. There are spin-off books, love languages for children, love languages in the workplace, love languages, daily devotional, you know, I don't know, love languages for your pet. You know, some like to be scratched behind the ear and some on the tummy or something. Um, and the person who wanted me to read the book said it really helped their marriage. And I thought that was fascinating for a biblical counselor to think that. Um, it was also interesting to me, somebody pointed out that in Tim Keller's really good book on the meaning of marriage, he has a section in there where he interacts with the, the love languages concept. He kind of refines it some, but that was interesting as well. And I'm kind of, I'm excited about this talk because I think it also is an opportunity to show how biblical counseling can see some common grace insights in what would be secular psychological thinking while also showing the superiority of God's word in accomplishing some of the same things that they're trying to do here. Uh, I think there's a lot of common grace wisdom and observation about human nature, but I think it's missing some really important things in terms of biblical truth. So I'm gonna summarize some of what the book is about try to say some kind, encouraging things about how it could be helpful in observation, and then try to give a kind critique from a biblical standpoint. But I'm also gonna use a grid that you could really apply to other things. Actually, I have in mind like to do boundaries next and some other well-known pop psychology concepts, and you can run it through the same grid. So what Chapman is saying in the book is that romantic relationships typically start out with a big bang, you fall in love, uh, you, like in Bambi, you get Twitter-pated and you're just gaga. And that's something that is important to us as human beings. By the way, if you're listening to this audio, I'm stating what somebody else says, I'm not stating what I believe. <laughs> so, uh, that you, so he says you begin with this empty love tank and that the relationship fills your empty love tank. Quoting him, he says, I need to be loved by someone who chooses to love me, who sees in me something worth loving. But he also warns that this euphoric in love, I would say Twitter-pated, you know, rose-colored glasses experience, which seems so wonderful, 
doesn't last forever. You know, in the, uh, all the fairy tales, and they lived happily ever after. Well, he would say, no, they didn't last more than a year or two because after a year or two, he says, the in-love experience temporarily meets that need for the love tank to be filled, but it is inevitably a quick fix and has a limited and predictable lifespan. And he quotes a psychologist who says, the average lifespan of a romantic obsession is two years. And then your eyes are opened and you see the faults of your partner and you have fights and it gets more challenging in the real world of marriage. Now, what I've observed, and others have pointed this out too, is the same thing works for the fairs, doesn't it? That people who have an affair, they get obsessed, they get excited, it's all the most wonderful thing they've ever done. And six months or a year later, they come back down to earth and they realize, you know, this person isn't perfect and I've just ruined my life by abandoning my spouse who's been faithful to me for 20 years. Um, that, that, that there is, so I think it's an accurate observation that there can be great excitement and intensity in a new relationship. He tries to say that if you always felt this intensely about somebody, you'd be kind of worthless. You know, you're so obsessed with this person that you could never get anything done, so it's a good thing it didn't last forever. Um, and anyway, so we have this dilemma so that if the love tank kind of empties in the first year or two, how do you keep filling each other's emotional love tanks after the, the excitement of the early relationship wears off? And his book is saying, here's the answer that will help you to sustain the relationship. And he makes the statement, just as people learn a primary language, they have an emotional language, and, and different people have different languages they speak. And he says, most people have a primary love language which reflects what they most need or want out of relationships. It's what they need to get their love tank filled. And he has five categories. Some of these are familiar to you. Um, probably all of them are to some extent. And as we're going to move on, most of them have some correlation in Scripture. So one would be words of affirmation. Uh, wow, you look great today. That was a wonderful dinner. Thank you for working so hard for us. Uh, quality time, uh, you know, that quality time would be, could you please put away the phone, turn off the television, and pay attention to what I'm saying? But, you know, people, their big thing is spend lots of time uh, in intense interaction, undistracted, uh, listening well, observing body language, not interrupting, and... Uh, learning to express yourself. And sometimes the person who wants quality time and communication, they want you to uh, learn to talk more to them. And I'll say something personal on this one. Well, I'll wait. I'll wait for the personal example. Another category is receiving gifts. And it doesn't have to be like, there's a new car in the driveway, like the Lexus Christmas commercial. You know, it's it can be flowers or candy or some small thing, but it just shows I'm thinking about you. And you know, he'll tell a story of the woman who he gave her a, you know, whatever, a piece of plastic shaped like a flower or something on their first date, and she still cherishes it 30 years later. Uh, acts of service, uh, the honeydew list. And this often comes up in counseling as well. To explain to some guy that when your wife says, will you please fix the broken toilet, the translation of that is, if you love me, <laughs> this will be done soon. Uh, he does not understand that dialect. Uh, and then the fifth category is physical touch. And 
he breaks it into two categories. And actually, my friend, the couple we were talking about that asked me to read the book, said to Caroline and me that she had discovered hers was physical touch. Not sex, but hand-holding, arm around, sit on the couch with me, cuddle. That's huge to me. Um, and there are some people for whom the physical touch may mean sex. Um, and he states most sexual problems in marriage is everything to do with meeting emotional needs. And I don't disagree with that either. Then the question is, well, how do you know what your spouse's love language is? And there are a couple ways, he says, and again, all of this makes sense, that first you see how they try to express love to you. So if I'm always giving gifts to people and always giving gifts to Caroline, that probably means I want somebody to give me gifts. Uh, or if someone's always being physically affectionate. And, of course, the, the whole pattern of the book will be, if you read the book chapter after chapter, the chapter about each language, and in each chapter, the problem will be that Sam keeps buying Alice gift after gift after gift when all she really wants is words of affirmation, so the gifts are useless, but when, she, when Sam finally learns her language and starts giving her words of affirmation, honeymoon resumes, everything's great. Um, but again, that would be, you, know, you observe what, how they try to show love, and then another would be you pay attention to what your spouse is complaining about the most. Why don't you spend more time with me? Why are you always staring at your phone? Uh, why do you keep forgetting our anniversary? He says, my spouse's criticisms about my behavior provide me with the clearest clue to her primary love language. Um, he also says that it can be hard to, harder to discern the love language of a spouse whose love tank is full, who is already happy and being loved. It's when they're not getting what they want, they're complaining, I guess he says it's easier. Uh, and another good point he makes is that it's possible to misuse your knowledge of your spouse's love language in the sense that you know they yearn for physical touch and affection and cuddling, and so you deliberately withhold that from them. Or they yearn for connection and quality time, and so you uh, don't give them that, and that's a way of, it can be used to, to hurt. He has a test in the back of the book. It's kind of like these personality tests other speakers have talked about, where you answer all the questions and you figure out what you are and what your spouse is. Um, the best part of the book is a chapter called Loving the Unlovely, where he says that one can show gracious love even if your spouse is acting like an enemy. And this is where he actually, more than any other chapter, brings up scripture and he uses Luke 6 when Jesus talks about loving your enemy. And he's saying when you don't feel loved, you can choose love. And here's a quote, read Jesus' sermon on loving your enemies, loving those who use you, then ask God to help you to practice the teachings of Jesus. I'm going to read that again, and I want to see if anybody noticed anything wrong with the statement. Read Jesus' sermon on loving your enemies, loving those who use you, then ask God to help you practice the teachings of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there's something erroneous about that. Is there something really important missing from that? What's missing? The gospel, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, what is necessary to make this happen. Uh, this book reminds me a lot of another book I've read, Love and Respect. It's just husband's love language is to be respected, wife's love language is to be loved. You know, understanding what your spouse needs is the key to marital happiness. It has similar strengths and similar weaknesses. 
the, the, the weakness, part of the weakness is what do you do if you don't get what you want? Uh, somebody else pointed out to me it has some commonality with Maslow, the psychologist, and his hierarchy of needs that you've got this need has to be met, then this need, this need, this, it's, it's about your needs. Now, I also found, if you can't remember the five love languages, somebody sent this to me, the five love languages of tacos. Words of affirmation, your tacos are delicious. Acts of service, I made you some tacos. Receiving gifts, here's a taco for you. Quality time, let's go out for tacos together. Physical touch, let me hold you like you're a taco. Um, so, critique, kind critique. He's not trying to write a biblical counseling book. He's writing for a very broad audience, not specifically Christian. He makes some kind of subtle references here and there uh, before the love your enemies part to Bible verses, and, and there's some, some kind of general wisdom to what he's saying there. And we say in the basic training in count, biblical counseling that unbelievers or people who are integrationists, he's professing Christian leader, but people who are coming from a psychological viewpoint can accurately describe human nature, human behavior, even sometimes human, some aspect of human motivation. And so he has some really practical insights into what people seek from romantic relationships. And he does a good job with his stories of communicating that well. Uh, and I think that on a common grace level, it could be helpful to some people. Now, unbelievers can have relatively harmonious marriages, and their marriages might be improved if they worked harder at understanding each other uh, and trying to meet each other's needs. And actually, the reason why my friend had me read the book, because actually when we met, we, they live in a different city, but we went up to be with them uh, for a weekend, and... I wanted to talk about the book because I had all these, why do you like this book? I've got concerns. And she explained how she had understood her love language was touch and her husband's love language is affirmation and it's helped them to get along better. But then she says, the real reason I read, had you read this book is because I want to talk to you about your relationship with one of your sons. And we've confided in her some of the challenges we've had. We have three unbelieving adult sons. And it was actually... Probably in my whole life, there have been only one other time when I've been on the other end of counsel that was so firm and direct and humbling. Because really what she was getting at is she was just, we had a very, very difficult time with one of our sons over some issues. And we, he's not a believer, um, but we had told them some about these concerns. And she, for maybe 30 minutes, actually when it started, her husband left the room, and I, now I know why. Caroline and I were still there. Caroline never says a word, and she comes after me lovingly as a faithful friend, wounding, and says, the reason why your son is struggling is because he yearns for quality time from you because we've done a lot for them that cost a great deal of money. We've done a lot of other things. But he says, you're really bad, Jim, at quality time. When people are with you, you're looking at your phone, you're looking around, you're this to that. And even describing some of the, we had told them some of the particulars of what had happened uh, the previous summer when the son became very angry at us and we had awful conflict. It was actually during this conference last year. And you know, he was angry. There was a situation where on Father's Day, he was playing a game with Caroline. And I walked by and I said, Caroline, 
uh, you need to call your dad. It's getting late where your dad lives. It's, you need to call him too late. Well, she gets away from the game, so I've now destroyed his quality time with his mother by interrupting that. And there were other incidents. I won't go through all of them, but it was beneficial to me in a couple of ways. We, one of the most beneficial ways is that I'm usually the one counseling. It's like you're a doctor getting operated on. And I realized this is really, really hard. <laughs> that she is unrelenting, she's coming right after me, she has no fear, she's coming like a daughter to a father in one sense. We've been very good friends all these years. She's worked with me on projects, she's done a great, but I mean, she's just, she's not backing off. And in my mind, I'm making it, I did this, I did this, I did this, he did that. But I also knew she was completely right that I had failed to love my son the way he yearned to be loved. And I had, she even gave me homework, a lot of it. Uh, call your son every week. Don't do anything else while you're talking to him. Don't get off the phone till he wants to get off the phone. When you come to California, spend lots of time, turn off your phone, da 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 And we've been here almost two weeks and it's working. <laughs> That doesn't mean I've become a psychologist, but um, I, I, so I think there's wisdom in that, but also the wisdom that is there is already found in scripture. I mean, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. The, the Bible says, you know, do unto others you would have them do unto you. First Peter 3, 7 says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And interestingly, although I'd never read the book before, I've, when I teach, when I've counseled, I say, we men need to study our wives because they're really different from us and what they want is different than what we want. We need to figure out what makes them really happy. And so my wife likes sewing and she likes stamps, postage stamps and certain things. And so I learn what she likes and I accommodate to what she likes. She likes to take it easy. I like to always be doing things. And so the idea is in scripture, Philippians 2, consider others more important than yourself, not looking out for your own interests. So we're to be others-minded, uh, I guess emotional intelligence people would say others aware, but the Bible says we should be aware of others and, and care about them. We should listen well. Proverbs 20 verse five uh, was used earlier in the week by Scott that the plan of a man's heart is like a deep well, but a person of understanding will draw it out. And even the individual love languages, you can see in the Bible words of affirmation. Proverbs 31, her husband rises up and blesses her saying many women have done well, but you surpass them all. That, you know, that's affirmation, is our, the, Paul affirming the churches, Jesus affirming the churches in Revelation. A quality time. Paul wants to go be with the people in Rome, not just write them letters. Uh, back to Proverbs 20, verse 5, that it takes time to listen to somebody uh, to understand them. He, Proverbs 7, 18, 13, he who speaks before he listens is a folly and a shame to him. Gifts. Uh, Paul is thankful for the gifts the Philippians sent him. And, then in uh, Proverbs, again in 18 actually, verse 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. So for some people value gifts, acts of service. Jesus washing the disciples' feet comes to mind, uh, among many others. And then even touch, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, husbands and wives owe each other sexual rights in marriage and, and touching in that way. So it's there. So what are we to think of this? And now the next part I want to do is to 
take a grid, and some of this I've got from Heath Lambert, it's maybe modified a bit for my own purposes, but it's a grid you could use with most methodologies. And in one sense, you can say there are some things to some extent they're getting right because it corresponds with the way we think biblically. There are some things that we're troubled by. So I'm going to take through five things in my grid that you could really do this or anything else, and this might help you in other situations. So first of all, authority. What is his authority? And actually, among psychologists, he's not even formally a psychologist, but among people who come from a psychological perspective, there are actually two potential sources of authority, typically. Uh, one authority is research, if you've heard of the Gottmans, and Carol and I have a critique of that. We may do some year at a conference similar to this. Super popular marriage counselors, sold millions of books, they're Jewish, they're not at all Christian, and they're, they, they have a love lab, and they do research, and they claim science proves everything they teach about marriage and the seven principles of how to make marriages successful. So that's scientific research they claim is their authority. For Chapman, his authority is really experience. It's anecdote after anecdote. He says that uh, years of marriage counseling from Seattle to Miami, couples have invited me to the inner chamber of their marriage. And basically his, his book is a sequence of stories where in each chapter, here's the person who wants touch and they're getting gifts. Here's the person who wants gifts and they're getting affirmation. And, and you figure out the language and in each chapter it always gets better. So here are these stories. When he does refer to scripture, it's kind of in a, the wisdom of old, you know, some old, you know, Solomon or somebody said this, but it, it's not redemptive, certainly. Um, here's an example. Marriage is designed to meet the need for intimacy and love. That is why the ancient biblical writings spoke of the husband and wife being one flesh. Or Solomon, author of the ancient Hebrew wisdom literature, wrote, the tongue has the power of life and death. Um, and then even the quote of, ask God to help you practice the teachings of Jesus I'm going to get to that further in, in, as we talk about redemption, but this is a very common characteristic of Christian counselors who are not biblical counselors, is they use the morality of the Bible detached from redemption. And so, you know, a Buddhist, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Muslim probably would all say, yes, if somebody treats you badly, it's noble to be nice to them. When Jesus says, love your enemies, Hindus, Buddhists, they'll all say, that sounds like a great idea. But it's in a moralistic way rather than in a redemptive way in terms of it's in Christ as a new creation with a new heart empowered and motivated by the gospel and the spirit working in me that I can do these things. So very typical of uh, other than biblical counseling will be the morals of the Bible, the wisdom of the Bible, but detached from the redemption taught by the Bible, which is the ground of everything. So his authority is, in his case, his experience observing people as a counselor. Of course, ours is scripture. All scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Psalm 19, it's the law of the Lord that restores the soul, enlightens the eyes, that it's a treasury more valuable than gold, much fine gold. So that's our authority, is scripture. Uh, what is his goal? Well, his goal is very much focused on the horizontal. His goal is that people would be happy in marriage. Now, that's not a, a terrible goal, but that is not what life is ultimately about. And this, some things he just says over and over again. I need to be loved by someone who chooses to love me, who sees something 
worth loving in me. My sense of self-worth is fed by the fact that my spouse loves me. After all, if she loves me, I must be worth loving. Her love builds my self-esteem. Is that biblical? No, it's kind of dangerous, isn't it? That, um, first of all, marriage is about grace in the sense that I'm not really claiming there's a lot in me worth loving. I'm thankful that I'm, I'm loved better than I deserve because of the gospel in Christ and the gospel uh, coming from my wife. Again, life is driven by the desire for success. If someone loves me, I must have significance. So the goal is happiness in relationship. The danger is this could lead to a selfish focus on getting my love tank filled, kind of like the love and respect. I need to be loved. I need to be respected. I need to be affirmed. I need to be touched, whatever the list may include. And then the danger is when your needs aren't being met, if your spouse doesn't meet your needs, if they don't fill your love tank, now you have some incompatibility, dangerous, uh, irreconcilable differences. You know, I can't be happy unless my spouse speaks my language. Um, what's our goal according to the Bible? We've already had 2 Corinthians 5, 9 quoted to us. Whether alive or dead, our goal is to be pleasing to him. And all you do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Peter 3 talks about a wife who's in a hard marriage. If your husband is disobedient to the word, win him without a word by your chaste and respectful behavior. Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man separate. That really never comes into the book. The reason you stay married isn't because your tank is getting filled. You stay married because that's what God wants you to do. <laughs> and sometimes there may be suffering in marriage. Now, again, with all the trouble people have, if you're being abused, go get safe. But some people have hardship in marriage, and they keep the covenant because they want to honor God. Uh, third category would be what is the understanding of human nature? And it's very much from a psychological perspective. Um, the desire for romantic love and marriage is deeply rooted in our psychological makeup. Uh, psychologists have concluded that the need to feel loved is a primary human emotional need. And then here's another quote. Inside every child is an emotional tank waiting to be filled with love. And this is going to relate to the problem, is that there's a view of human nature as, as neutral or good, as opposed to being sinful, which we will say is the problem, and also a view of marriage. Marriage is a covenant made under God. Marriage cannot be properly understood or explained unless you understand it as a covenant God-ordained covenant between one man and one woman where they stick together, rich or poor, better or worse, sickness and health, till death, death parts them. And there, there's a sense in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for a man to be alone. There's a sense in which we are incomplete without marriage, those of us who God has made to be married. But even beyond that, it's God who makes us complete. Um, so being in God's image and, and our ultimate need being met by God is not really in there. And then the fourth one is a huge one, and that is, what is the big problem? And he sees the big problem in marriage as being you don't understand well enough what your spouse needs. They don't understand what you need. It's a, it's a matter of communication rather than sin. And actually, I had a student at RTS when I was talking about this in class that was able to scan the entire book. And he told me that the word sin only occurs one time. And when it does, it occurs in kind of a pejorative sense of some preachers say the problem is sin. Not that he thinks that. You know, what does he think the big problem is? 
In the context of marriage, quoting him, if we do not feel loved, our differences are magnified. We come to view each other as a threat to our happiness. We fight for self-worth and significance, and marriage becomes a battlefield rather than a haven. Now, here's where you get to his view of human nature as well, speaking of children. Most of the misbehavior of children is motivated by the cravings of an empty love tank. When a child feels loved, he will develop normally, but when the love tank is empty, the child will misbehave. Their misbehavior was a misguided search for the love they did not feel. Now, there's some truth to that statement, and that is we ought to love our children, and children who are not loved are more likely to act up. But that is also a very incomplete statement about the problem with human nature, right? The problem with human nature isn't just that we're not being loved well enough, which is extraordinarily self-centered and an excuse. The problem with our children is that they are sinners. Um, likewise, sin is a huge problem in marriage. Again, could it be deep inside hurting couples exists an emotional love tank with its gauge on empty? Could the misbehavior, withdrawal, harsh words, critical spirit occur because of that love tank being empty? And my answer would be no. It occurs because we are sinners and we are selfish and we are angry and judgmental. We're self-righteous, we're vengeful, we're bitter. Just understanding what your spouse wants will not motivate or empower you to show love to them. Quite frankly, the, if your heart is embittered, you'll use that love knowledge against them to withhold from them what they really want. So this gets to the solution. Again, the solution, the key to marital success is understand what your spouse's love language is. Uh, could I've already quoted that one, that the emotional need for love must be met if we are to have emotional health. Now, I might even be able to say if he said the emotional need for love must be met by God if we were to have emotional health, but that's not what he is saying. Uh, when your spouse's emotional love tank is full and he feels secure in your love, the whole world looks bright and your spouse will move out to reach his highest potential in life. Again, it's not the failure to understand what your spouse yearns for. It's not that that's not a problem, but that's not the big problem. The big problem is sin. Uh, the big problem is anger, which is murder. The big problem is unwholesome words, which destroy rather than build up. Uh, so the Bible has another solution, and that is, first, you need to confess your sin to God. When David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And so when I have conflict with my wife, uh, I need to realize, most likely, I have some sin in this situation. Uh, I shared with another breakout session that uh, when we were talking about temptation, that this morning, I was hoping my wife would do something for me, and she just forgot. But that brought a temptation to me because I'm, I'm a selfish sinner that I was tempted to be upset with her, tempted to be angry, uh, the way that's been described, not throwing things and yelling and screaming that would be embarrassing in light of my position here, but just quiet and grumpy because she didn't do the thing I expected her to do. And I, I had to, to deal with my own sin First, before God, it just reveals what a selfish man I am to have such a wonderful wife and still be tempted to be angry with her on, and to do it in a way that nobody else would know but her. <laughs> um, now everybody knows. So, but it's first a God thing is that I'm sinning against God by mistreating my wife, by my side of the conflict. Then, you know, get the log out of your own eye before God. Matthew 5, 23, 24 talks about if your brother has something against you, you go to him. I mean, need to go to her if I expressed my grumpiness 
In her case, she went to me and sought my forgiveness, which then I knew I had to forgive her, which I didn't want to do and had to go through all the things and the struggle. It just it reveals what a sinner I am. But the Bible has answers that I can forgive, I can love, I can you know, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ has also forgiven you. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Ephesians 4, 31 to 5, 1. That's where love comes from. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19 is that the solution isn't just to be better at being a husband or a wife and figuring it out. You're telling a fish to fly. We can't do it apart from God. And it's, it's the love of God coming to us that we can reflect in grace and we can reflect in mercy and we can love when the other person doesn't deserve it. And then even beyond that, that when your spouse lets you down, it's Christ who ultimately fills your love tank, if you want to use such language. At Jeremiah 17, you probably know it well, verses 5 to 8, if you trust in men, you'll be like, what? A bush in the desert. But if you trust in God, you'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. He's describing the bush in the desert. Well, if it rains, she fills your love tank, everything's fine. But if it doesn't rain, you wilt. But for the believer, it's not that you shouldn't really bring joy to each other in marriage. Ecclesiastes 9.9, 9, you know, this is your you know, lot in life. Find happiness with the wife God has given you. That's a good thing to have, but it's not completely reliable. <laughs> Sometimes you're going to be on empty, but then as you're united to Christ and you're the tree planted by the water, you can love graciously. Grace enables you to love and to serve and to treat them better than they deserve. So, again, in, I've already said this, but in, in RTS, and these are books you probably seem familiar with, they have these five views books of counseling, if you've seen some of them, and there's one that's five views kind of on a theoretical level, where I think David Pallison wrote the biblical counseling chapter and other integration, integrationists, not other, integrationists wrote the other four chapters of different branches of Christian counseling that have large psychology dimension. There's another one that Stuart Scott wrote the chapter for the biblical counseling, and they take a case study of a guy named Jake. And how do you help Jake? Because he may have post-traumatic stress, and he was too frisky with his girlfriend. He's got all these problems, and what do you do? And what I try to impress on my students, when you read this book, and, then, and even the, the editors of the book who aren't biblical counselors admit the only person who questioned whether Jake needed the gospel was Stuart Scott, the biblical counselor. And some would even say, well, we don't bring in religion too soon. You know, we, we've got all these other things we use first. And when they did use the Bible at all, it was kind of this moralistic, wisdomy way without the gospel that no person of any other religion would have objected to. It's, it's using the Bible like a mantra or using the Bible in this, you know, just, again, spiritual, not holy spiritual, mystical way. Uh, People need the gospel to change. So a couple of other concerns. Um, I think the book has limitations as to who it can help. Uh, again, part of it is, like a lot of methodologies, is you know, the silver bullet to solve all marriage problems is understanding your spouse's love language. Make, a, make marriage great again. This is the one thing you can do. Um, you know, when the emotional need for love is met, it creates a climate where the couple can deal with the rest of life in a productive manner. And here's a lady who said, Mark could compliment me about something, 
but somehow it never made me feel great. But when he figured out that I valued acts of service, our marriage took a giant step. And now that he's fixing stuff, everything's good. And I think that for a marriage which is already doing pretty well, and I would include like my friend who confronted me about my son, I can see how in a marriage that's already doing pretty well, and you think in these categories, you think, well, I just realized that when I give my wife a gift, she just lights up. When I fix stuff, no big deal. Now, try stopping fixing the stuff and see if that works. But uh, anyway, you know, so I want to please my wife. I want to do what she loves. And, but that's assuming you've already got a good marriage. Um, it doesn't adequately account for human sinfulness and the damage that sinfulness does in marriage. And when people are angry and embittered against each other, they don't have the desire or the power to focus on loving and serving the other person. Again, apart from the gospel. It says we walk by the spirit that we can bear spiritual fruit. If you're in the flesh, you're going to be fleshly, which is going to include devouring each other with criticism and, and anger. Um, and so in the counseling I do, quite frankly, the couples who come to us with their marriage in crisis, this is not going to solve those problems. It they need to repent of their own sin before God. They need to, you know, we had Dave Harvey last year. He's got like, when sinners say I do, or Paul Tripp. So what did you expect? And you focus on not just my sin against my spouse, but my sin against God, that I'm a selfish man, and I'm a judgmental man, and I'm an insensitive man, and, you know, I'm falling short of a Christ-like husband that I should be in so many ways. And I need to focus upon dealing with my own sin, my own guilt before God, being thankful for the mercy poured out for me in Christ. And then when it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, it says, I know the love of Christ that I can begin to reflect that to her. And then vice versa as well. And, and we've seen marriages transformed by those truths because there's this heart transformation. It's not just learning something and putting it into practice on a merely practical level. Sometimes, he said, well, you can learn your spouse's love language by hearing what they complain about. Sometimes, complaining is sinful grumbling, like Philippians 2 describes and 1 Corinthians 10 describes. Uh, and it may be, you, there are some people you can never please because of their sin. And then sometimes, um, what you may lack may just reflect the weakness of your spouse, is that, you know, if, if you're spouse is a bit Asperger's-y, they're not real great at understanding, connecting, getting clues. They can work at being better as they should, but they, never, they may never be fluent in the language you think they need to speak. And there's going to have to be grace and accommodation there. Um, I, we're also concerned, and this is our concern with a lot of personality labeling as well, is that it's an accurate thing to say that you can observe people and say, well, this person likes this thing and this person likes that thing. But I think being pigeonholed or labeled can be harmful. Not everybody necessarily always desires one of those five things above the others. Uh, Caroline says that she's decided she's multilingual. She wants gifts, affirmation, acts of service, um, and she really can't make it. And, and quite frankly, on Tuesday, she's hoping for uh, some quality time, and on Thursday, she'd, you know, like a gift, and different times, different circumstances. 
But worse than this is focusing upon your own love language, and that's what a lot of people do with this, like love and respect, is you can become discontent. And, and we see this without the book, is a wife is saying, I asked my husband, it could be, I asked my husband to lead us in devotions. I asked my husband to spend time with me. It's not wrong to ask, but now you think about it all the time. And if you get this idea that my cup is empty, my love tank is empty, empty tank, you can't go anywhere. I'm, I'm helpless unless my husband changes and meets my need. That's a very dangerous position into which you put yourself. And I think it can lead to a lot of sinful conflict, bitterness, and even an unnecessary divorce. Well, because he will not meet my need, I'm going to go somewhere else because I have to be happy. I have to have my needs met. Thanks be to God that Jesus meets our ultimate need. And uh, you know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How blessed is the man in Jeremiah 17 whose trust is in the Lord. He will be like the tree planted by rivers of water who yields its fruit in its season. It does not wither in the year of drought. You know, when you have a drought in terms of your love cup being filled, because you're in Christ, you're able to endure and be faithful to your marriage and show love when you're not getting love back. And in some cases, that will often result in your spouse loving you back. And in some cases, you will keep loving and loving and loving, and you may not get it back. But in Christ, you have the power that you're not an empty tank, a dry, dead tree because your spouse isn't giving it to you because you, you're living in the love of Christ constantly. So, in summary, we can appreciate from people who don't share our perspective, they have common grace insight, and I will even admit that it can be helpful sometimes. It can be helpful to think in those categories. Uh, the Bible doesn't have exactly that list, even though I think they're implied. But it's always going to be missing really important stuff. They don't really understand who we are, what our problem is, what the solution is, and no earthly wisdom will compare to what God has in his word. And I'm going to read just to finish Psalm 19. And this is the way I think of other extra-biblical methodologies. It's helpful to a point, but it can't begin to hold a candle to what God has in Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, just than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Only the Bible has that kind of wisdom. There's no human wisdom that compares. And so I want to love my wife. I want to love my friends, my children well. But I think the best way to learn that, especially in understanding who people are and what they need, is best found in Scripture. And I finished in less than my total time. <laughs> so I can take questions or you can go to dinner early. It's your, your, your choice and your neighbor's choice. If you can have a conspiracy not to raise your hand, then you can talk to me later afterwards. Does anybody have a question you think is of public interest? Yes. Right. So the question is, can this be used in a positive way where you understand the love languages and focus on caring for your spouse? I think that's part of what you would be getting at. And I would say, I find these categories to be helpful. I see them also in Scripture, but thinking in terms of gifts, acts of service, quality time, affirmation, those are helpful categories for me to think, and how can I best serve my wife 
my children, understand why what I'm doing right now may not be working. So I think those, are, those can be useful as you focus on the other person. So I did one one time to see what it is. I, again, Carol and I talk about these things. By the way, we spend a lot of quality time now because we don't have many friends in North Carolina. <laughs> we go on long walks every night and she talked for two years about all of her classes and now we're talking about her counseling. So Enneagram, I think over the years there have been all these efforts to peg people. And the five language, love languages is you're this and you're this and you're this. Some of, most of you are too young to remember, but I remember back in the 70s into the 80s, one of Tim LaHaye's early books was Spirit-Controlled Temperaments. And I'm a phlegmatic and I'm a choleric and I'm a sanguine and what's the fourth? Melancholy. And so you, and you, you'd say, yeah, that guy is, he fits these five characteristics of melancholy and this fits the four characteristics of the sanguine. And here's how you deal with people like that. And, I mean, now you have emotional intelligence and you have, I mean, in my lifetime, there have been so many of these things and the Myers-Briggs and this, that, and the other. So I think on a certain level, it can be interesting to see, yeah, there are people who are different ways, but kind of like the love languages thing, I think pegging somebody that way and saying, you are a this, I am a that. Um, I think people can change. I think people can look at it as, well, because I am a one of these, then everybody's got to get out of my way because I'm a choleric and you know, we cholerics, we charge forward and you better either follow or spread out. So the other thing for me is when I take those tests and I've done several of them, you don't have to be a PhD in psychology to know what each answer is gonna to lead to anyway. So really, what you answer is just gonna be, I'd like to appear this way, or this is what I think of myself. So we, we want some scientific way of categorizing ourselves and others. And the point would be, the Bible says we should work hard to understand each other. Some of that could be, in a very limited way, useful, but there are also dangers in terms of buttonholing people and people using that as an excuse for being what the Bible would call sinful. Why don't we look, why don't, again, I want to be the fruit of the Spirit and the characteristics of love as the things I'm striving for, which all personality types should work on. But yes, I understand, you know, I'm more driven, my wife's more relaxed. She like, her idea of a vacation is to take it easy. My idea of a vacation is to do everything there is to do wherever we are. And we learn to accommodate each other and some tests would probably figure that out too. I didn't need the test, personally. Anybody else? Yes, right, and that's, I don't know if you're here for Scott's thing on Thursday all day, but he talks about how counseling is messy and unscripted, and it's very important to listen well and then to fit with you. You don't just have this is how we, I mean, actually, I had a, I'm, I'm supervising people who are getting ACBC certified and are students of mine, and I listened to what was supposed to be a marriage counseling session where my student talked for 55 minutes and the other people now and then gave a yes or no answer. And I said, that was teaching, not counseling. And counseling is going to be interactive where you're, you're doing a lot of listening and understanding because not everybody, not everybody is a nail that needs your hammer. Sometimes you're going to have to use the Bible. And I still say the Bible in general is the solution, but different things are different needs. For, different situations have different needs. Okay, let me close in prayer, and then you get a little extra time so you can be back on time for the evening session. Let me pray. 
Thank you, O God, that you've made us as we are. And even though we are sinful and fallen, you have brought redemption to us in Christ. Help us learn how to understand one another in the context of the church, especially in our homes. Help us to be humble learners and lovers and help us to learn to show grace to one another as you have shown us grace in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Copyright 2019 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.